0: Hi there, Mahaba Vehosh Geldenez. Welcome to another edition of Talking Around North Cyprus. I'm Sarah Palmer. As always, I'm joined by my former BBC colleague, Roger Barra, luckily safely retired in the TRNC. Not at all jealous, no, 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 not a bit. I guess it's bakingly hot over there at the moment, Rog. I see temperatures haven't gone down at all over the past week, so uh, nothing much there to report, I guess. But what about the vaccination program? I see there's been a little bit of progress on that.
1: Hi, Sarah. Hello, everybody. Yes, our vaccination program has been going really, really well. I mean, our oldest were um, were both double vaxxed by the middle of. February so you know compared to a lot of other places we've been doing well but thanks to our lovely mate Izzy who of course we had on this podcast not too long ago. He's published the latest info which as you know is always totally trustworthy and he says the health minister has just said on television that vaccinations for 12 to 18 year olds will begin next Monday 16th of August in a couple of days time and apparently there are about 20,000 youngsters in that age group. And again, for us oldies, well, the third dose is being given to over 70s right now. And on that same Monday, uh, people all over the age of 55 can get theirs. Now, I'm not sure of the situation all around the TRNC, but certainly in the Iscali area, you don't need to make an appointment. But I've been warned by our lovely chemist, Nala, it does get crowded and you need to wait outside Obviously, in these temperatures, you're going to need yeah, good protection sure. from what is baking heat at the moment. It's unrelenting. Anyway, thanks to the Marvellous City for getting that information out. And as I say, the situation in other parts of the island might be different, but according to some posts I've read this morning on social media, it looks like at least some of the locations around the island have a similar system. Just turn up and and, and hope for the best. So I think you need to contact your, your local Authority and just see what's going on there, just to check up
0: That sounds great. I mean, it sounds like they're really sort of on top of it, doesn't it? And I'm guessing the figures are—they've always been low because of you know the, the the population. But I'm guessing the figures are sort of you know still sort of fairly stable.
1: They're stable, but no one's very comfy, Sarah. There were about 180 new cases yesterday by TRNC standards. I mean, it's not spiraling out of control. I'm not even pretending it's going that way, but it doesn't seem to be coming down at all. So, you know, I think there's still, we still have our curfew, 12 till 5. And premises late at night have to be empty by 11.30. So if you're watching evening football, uh, like I tend to do if you're in a bar and it kicks off at 10 o'clock our time, of course being two hours ahead, uh, halfway
0: through the second half, you've got to get up and go home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talking of football, let's just divert a little bit. Uh, did you see the game last night with Brentford?
1: Uh, yeah,
0: I'm not talking about it. OK. It's just uh, the um, friend of mine who lives in Paphos, Andy, um, he's a Brentford Brentford supporter, So, um, and I know you're, um, you're not, just saying, uh, well done, Brentford. Um,
1: <laughs> well, I hope so, that makes you feel good because it makes me feel rubbish. Oh, bless you, that's It's only the
0: beginning, it's the first game. It's the first game, it's yeah. The, it was yeah. the opening
1: of the premiership season. I mean, if, if Brentford were playing anybody but my team, of course, I would have wanted them to win. But no, great start for, for the newcomers. And you know, the last time they played in the top flight, 1947. Amazing. No, yeah, oh. ah. Yeah. Oh wow. They got, rele- they got relegated uh, a couple of years after the World War 2 and they never managed to get back to the top flight.
0: Yeah, well I remember I yeah, that's right. And actually, that's that's why I'm sort of pleased because they have sort of, you know, fought their way back. Anyway, moving on, let's move on swiftly, shall we? Let's uh, let's ignore that. Um, let's get to uh, this week's guest. And we're delighted to introduce someone to you who originated from the Bristol area in the UK. He not only rents a property in North Cyprus near Boaz, uh, close to Iskele, but he also owns a property down in the south in Larnaca and regularly commutes uh, between the two places. Well, Steve Comer is his name. And Steve's background is in local government and trade unions, during which time he must have entered into many a negotiation. So I I wonder what he thinks of the Cyprus problem. Well, I think we're going to find out fairly soon. Uh, But first, Rog, I know I needn't ask, but where did you and Steve first
1: meet? Well, funny enough, Sarah, you might not quite believe this. (laughs) But it was in a bar. No. And uh, it was during the World Cup in 2018. We, we met in a bar in Boaz, which sadly isn't there any longer. It was a wonderful occasion because about half an hour before kickoff, the electricity went off. It was a power <laughs> cut, <laughs> uh, which you imagine, you you know, you're like, oh, I don't know if it was England's first game, it might be their second game. I can't remember now. I mean, I can't remember what I did last week, let alone what happened three years ago. But then we found out what it was, Uh, along the road coming from the port of Famagusta was the biggest electrical transformer I've ever seen transported by road. And as you know, in in the rural areas like Boaz, Boaz Harbour, the electricity wires um, are by the side of the road above ground on poles, rather than being underneath the ground. And there were men going standing on the back of a, a truck lifting these electric wires up <laughs> so that this generator could get through to the, uh, to the electricity substation and obviously they had to turn the power off so they didn't fry these workers who were lifting the poles up and the trouble is the traffic came to a complete and utter standstill so mrs b was asked to pick us up i think it took her two hours just no. to get to us Uh, Well, of course, this thing's doing about half a kilometre an hour, you know, because it's so (laughs) absolutely massive. Anyway, that's why I remember meeting Steve. We've remained mates. But I think what will strike everyone is his immense knowledge of Cypriot history, especially since 1974. Now, to add to that, he's got properties, as you said, Sarah, on both sides of the Green Line. So he's in a perfect opinion to tell us about, you know, the differences, the similarities borders
0: etc yeah absolutely but as always we like to know what created this interest in the island and uh why he stayed here so long uh, we had a chat with him just a couple of days ago
2: yeah it's an interesting story really i mean it, it goes back quite a long time back in when i was a student in london i i did a summer job in the factory that made matchbox toys you know the little cars so i did a whole summer in the foundry there and I earned quite good money and uh, my girlfriend at the time and I said, "Well, you know, let's go on holiday somewhere." So we looked around and, you know, wanted a mix of not just beach but also a bit of cultural background as well. Uh, and booked to go to Famagusta. Now this was August 1974, so obviously, as you will deduce, we never actually got out here, <laughs> and um, in the end had had to go somewhere else. But so that sort of planted the interest really, and because we were. Due to come out here, then obviously I followed the news that summer as to what was happening and the uh, the news reports. I remember Michael Nicholson on News at Ten getting the getting the scoop when the uh, Turkish paratroopers landed, and um, I'd always sort of had a bit of an interest. Roll on about 20-odd years later, I, I met Mary Southcott, who also lived in Bristol. We met through a sort of mutual interest in a political campaign for electoral reform at the time, but she was also the coordinator of a parliamentary group called Friends of Cyprus, and so we got chatting and occasionally, because we'd both go to London for, for work, we would bump into each other on a train, quite literally. I remember hearing about the the, An-An, the negotiations that led to the Annan referendum and so on, and that sparked my interest. But what really made us come over here was in 2003, of course, the crossings opened. And I thought, well, now might be a good time to go on holiday in Cyprus, because you can now see the whole island, whereas before, you could only fly into the south or fly into the north. And I think you could cross, but only through Ledra Street in Nicosia and only for daylight hours. So it's very restricted. And I thought, well, it would be nice to see the whole island. So we we came over here for a fortnight, liked it, came back two more times on package deals, you know, with self-catering accommodation, And then we started to think, well, we do like it here. And of course, in 2003 to five, there was a big building boom on the island, north and south. And so there were then lots of rental apartments available. And by now, People like EasyJet, Thomas Cook and so on were offering cheap flights from regional airports, including mine in Bristol. So I thought, well, you know, let's get ourselves out to Cyprus. Let's let's book a place to stay. Uh, And that's what we did. And really, it was change of circumstances at home. I was in a position where my best option was to take voluntary severance from the, the civil service about five years before I was due to retire anyway. That got us thinking about maybe buying a property somewhere. And in the end, that's what we did. And we, we bought a property here that was initially, we would use it a couple of times a year and we'd rent it through websites and hope to recoup the maintenance cost. And for a couple of years, we did that. Then it got more difficult. The rental market got difficult. Lots of competition from the big hotels offering ridiculous deals. So we always had the plan that when we both retired, we, we'd we come out here. Uh, and that's what we ended up doing. And initially the, uh, the apartment in Boaz that we we'd use, we we stayed there uh, for a few months. We also drove across, which was good fun. We we drove across from uh, from England, so we had a sort of twelve night holiday going through uh, Belgium, Luxembourg, Germany, Slovenia, Croatia, and so on down through Bulgaria, and then obviously through Turkey. Got the boat from somewhere in the south of Turkey and ended up in uh, ended up in Kyrenia and drove to our apartment. Right. So we were able to bring quite a lot of stuff with us, which helped. And uh, but I think we always knew that uh, although we 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 love Boaz, we love the apartment there, that really we're both city types and we were looking for for something uh, a little bit more and and to split our time. So we liked Larnaca, we'd stayed in both Boaz and Larnaca one when we first came out here. Actually, we had a week in each. So we started to have a look and see what was around the Larnaca area and unusual circumstances. Initially, it was through friends out here where we sort of, we were looking after their apartment. And as part of the deal, we could stay there. And then uh, a few years later, we we actually bought, we actually bought it from them. So for a long time, we were sort of traveling backwards and forth fairly regularly between Boaz and Larnaca. Got quite used to that lifestyle. I think we'd spend more time in Larnaca in the winter and more time in Boaz in the summer. Holiday apartments aren't great in winter. So yes, we, we started doing that regular shuffle and for a long time that worked very well for us. Well,
1: Steve, you, you're one of our first guests, maybe the first that, that live in both places, the North and the South. So from your experience, What are the similarities between the two? sides of the island and and what do you think are the main differences
2: there's some good and bad similarities actually i mean obviously things like the food and the culture are, are, are almost identical you know there, there are some things that are northern specialities like iran and some things that are southern specialities like Tar- with tarama salata although that comes from greece th- that you don't get in either jurisdictions but I, I actually find that with the people with with cypriots turkish and greek speaking cypriots are very similar they're outgoing persons they're quite family orientated they're very welcoming good to be with so that similarity is there N- not such a good similarity is that uh, both areas have gone mad with a building boom and that was most noticeable in the south in the Limassol and Paphos areas when we first came out here then spread further east not so much in Larnaca but sort of Panera Proteras area and of course in the north in Kyrenia there was a huge building boom uh, along that northern Ooh. coastline uh, up as far as Ezentepe. and more recently, of course, Boaz has changed. I mean, Boaz is not the attractive backwater that we we found. It's now parts of it look like suburban Bristol, frankly, with you know tower block city. I'm not sure how sustainable that is as a development, and that must be a worry long term.
0: Steve, you you obviously pay close attention to the politics and history of Cyprus. You were saying earlier, you know, that you followed it right from from 1974. So, where do you see the island now, and and what do you see happening in the future? I mean, we we we've got talks here and there, and different politicians. So, so what's your view on that?
2: I think the difficulty is you you you've you've got a frozen conflict, and it's been a frozen conflict for, depending on which figures you look at, but getting on for sixty years. The difficulty is uh, it's to do with the history of the island, and that they're, they're unlike a lot of colonial premise countries that there was not a united anti-colonial movement there was a movement that, that wanted to link with greece and there was a movement that wanted to divide the island and be closer to turkey that was a nationalist extremes actually ordinary people got on pretty well. Older generations I've spoken to told me. Um, As to where it's going now, it's difficult to see an outcome. I think there was an opportunity to actually get a settlement based on a a federal, you know, two-state federal country, a bit like Belgium. That was lost at Cram Montana when Nikos Anastasiadis, the President of the South, basically walked away from the table. I think mainly motivated by the fact that his re-election was coming up a few months later, and he wanted to sort of secure that, and was worried that a, a settlement that might be less than people hoped would, would make that difficult. So I think he put his own interests first. He had an opposite number then in Mustafa Kunca, who was very pro-reconciliation, so there was an opportunity there. And at cran Montana, Turkey was certainly, or the Turkish foreign minister anyway, was certainly prepared to discuss things that Turkey had never been prepared to discuss before, like security and guarantees. So I think that there was an opportunity. I think that was one of a long line of missed opportunities. It's been said, you know, never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. It's interesting, I listened to your programme with Harbour a few weeks ago, and she was very much saying that, you know, we we have to get a, a solution that suits people on the island and I think the only one that's workable is a federal solution with with two states that do most of their domestic stuff and really apart from the national budget and foreign affairs then that's it which is more or less how Belgium operates and to an extent Switzerland so uh, I think I think there is a model the question is the leap of faith to get there and whether you've got people on both sides at the time who are prepared to do that and the other players mainly Turkey whether they're on board with that as well I don't think Greece is an obstacle to a settlement these days it maybe was at one time and I don't think Britain is either although obviously it has its interests in terms of the sovereign bases with it, which it wants to hang on to so I, I, I think there is a uh, an opportunity but it needs goodwill on both sides and that is now missing and the election of and Tatar last year has made things a whole lot worse. Predictable, I think it was, because the pattern of Turkish-Cypriot presidency is that it goes from a hardliner to someone who wants reconciliation, then that doesn't work, so they go back to a hardliner. I mean, you had Denktash, followed by Talat, followed by Erolu, followed by Kuncha, followed by Tatar. So, there were difficulties there. There were also difficulties with the election, which I won't go into in detail because that would take a a whole programme, but I've co-authored a report with Mary Southcott on that. But, you know, we are where we are. I think it's possible. I I was talking to one of the chairs of the bicommunal committee on, on heritage a few weeks ago, and he said, never underestimate the unexpected making a dramatic change. Now, whether that's something unexpected in Cyprus, something unexpected in Turkey, or in the wider Eastern Mediterranean, who knows? But I think it's possible that we could see a change very quickly. I think the major problem with the talks, all the way along the line, going back 50-odd years is that they've never really involved the ordinary citizens. They've always been at a level where it's the, the politicians at the top, the UN, the, the guarantor powers. There's never really been a conversation with Turkish and Greek Cypriots about what does a solution look like? What does a, a, a federal Cyprus look like for you? What are your fears? What are your hopes? Uh, and that conversation never really happened. And I think that's that's the problem. I think that needs to be addressed. I don't think it will be addressed by politicians sitting in their corners
1: so so do you think the only way forward really steve is for the people to rise up and say enough is enough do you think the two sides and i'm talking about the ordinary people now like you just were do you think they have enough in common to rise up against the nationalistic aims of both sides politicians
2: i think there is potential there Certainly, if you look at what happened in the 2003 period in, in the North, there was a huge upsurge of people wanting a solution, uh, wanting to be part of the EU, wanting to be, in their eyes, fully part of modern Europe and not on the fringe of it. And, you know, you had tens, hundreds of thousands of people on the, on the streets. You didn't have quite the same momentum in, in the South. I, I think one of the difficulties is that a, a lot of separatists have become comfortable with the frozen conflict and think that nothing will change. So it's okay. A bit like Lebanon was, you know, for years and years you had this... Very odd constitution where the president had to be one religion and the Speaker of the House another and so on. And it sort of rubbed along for a while until it didn't. And they had 15 years of civil war. And I think that's where we are in Cyprus. A lot of people think, oh, well, I've got a lot to lose if if there is a change. But actually, they've got a hell of a lot more to gain. There were a series of reports by Greek Cypriot, Turkish Cypriot and an English economist a few years ago called The Day After. And there was The Day After, one, two, three, and I think four. And, and it's clear that when you look at all the figures, Cyprus as a whole has a lot to gain from resolving this frozen conflict. Uh, and I think within that, the north of Cyprus has even more to gain, because economically it's, it's below the south in terms of earnings, and you know there, there is more growth potential there. But if people see in the south that the only option is is more and more building and dodgy schemes selling passports. And if people see in the North that more and more casino hotels is is the way forward, then I think you've got a problem. And particularly in the North, because the casino hotels don't seem to employ many local people that bring workers in. So I I don't know. Both countries suffer from the fact that I think, and I speak as an ex-civil servant, that I, I think people look for A job in the civil service because it's got a pension and it's long term and it's safe. So that tends to mean that some of the best brains, you know, aren't in the aren't in the wealth producing side of the economy. So they do that or go into law or accountancy or whatever. So I I think I think that's a cultural shift that probably needs to happen. But it's the same both sides of the green line.
0: Perhaps we could just sort of move forward a little bit and talk about how you see coming across the border. I know a lot of people listening to this are worried about getting backwards and forwards across the border. How, do, how does it work for you? Because you, you live in both sides. So what's the sort of current situation as we, as we talk in August?
2: Well, current situation is better than it was after the first week of June, because for a long time, crossing was very difficult. And in fact, from about March 2020 until June, I think we we crossed to the north precisely twice because you had to have PCR tests, which were not only expensive, but time consuming. And then the crossings were closed completely for a large part of that time. Uh, ostensibly because of COVID reasons. So it did get more difficult. Things have now eased again in that you can cross if you, they they now accept rapid tests, which is a lot easier. So you've you've still got to, we're both double vaccinated. So we've got the EU COVID passport, but Cyprus still needs PCR or rapid tests both sides so yeah we've got to get a test when we when we come up if we stay more than seven days we've got to get a test in the north to go south rather more cumbersome procedure in the north and in the south it has to be said so I'm, I'm trying to avoid it so we've got to come up because problems with the apartment we have in the north we've got builders in and so on so we've got to come up to support those so we tend to come up for six days and then go back but no it, it's fine it's obviously not as easy as it was prior to COVID. We've also got the advantage, because we've got permanent residency in the South, then we're not hit by other restrictions. Whereas I know that other people, they have issues with 90 day limits and and things like that. Well, as permanent residents, that that doesn't concern us. So relatively straightforward. It's almost, as I say, with the exception of the tests, it's almost back to to where it was prior to COVID and the crossings closing.
1: The other boat of contention for many residents and visitors to North Cyprus is that it's very difficult during the COVID pandemic uh, to travel via Turkey to get to London. It's also, if you look at social media, it can be excruciatingly difficult to travel from the north through the south to either Paphos or Larnaca for onward transmission Very, very few flights take place uh, to London via Turkey. And I just wonder how you feel about that. And what do you think the British government or the CAA itself should be rather more understanding to those stuck in North Cyprus?
2: Obviously, Turkey's a red country, I think. So that's part of the problem. I'm not quite sure what the issue was. I mean, we, we only ever flew once from Ercan to to England because Stansted's not a hugely convenient airport for us. When we did, you had the touchdown system, you know, you 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 the plane left urgent touched down in Turkey, you you sat for a few minutes where those that were getting off in Istanbul got off and those that were joining got on. And then you moved on. Now, that was changed for security reasons some while ago, about three or four years ago, I think. Now, I I don't know what the security issues are. And the trouble is, whenever you talk to the British government about security issues, you don't get a straight answer. But I don't see why they can't do that. And then if if there's some sort of way that the airline will certify that you're a transit-only passenger and didn't get off the plane, then that would work. As far as coming through Larnaca is concerned, then I think that is possible. And I've met people who've done that recently It does seem to be easier if you do it by using a taxi based in the north. That does seem to be an easier route. Now, I think that may be because they can talk to people on the crossings in Turkish they're probably well known because they make the journey every day and I think that's probably easier than to do what we used to do before we moved here which is pick up a hire car at the airport get your insurance in the crossing and then then you're set for your your two or three weeks or whatever so I think that is a, a route but you know sometimes here you you get stories that that sound horrendous but it's people exaggerating or getting the wrong end of the stick and that you know they stick it on Facebook or on a blog or something. And it, and it turns out not to be accurate. Uh, and I think, you know, now we have got some quite good sources of information. The uh, You've got Harvest Consultancy, you've got North Cyprus Uncut. But, you know, there, there is now a site that gives you the official word rather than what somebody in a bar in Lapta said to their mate who just got off the plane, which is where, where a lot of this misinformation comes from.
0: So Steve, a foot in both camps, what's your favourite thing about southern Cyprus and what's your favourite thing about northern Cyprus?
2: I think my, my, my favourite thing about the, the south is, is the modernity, the fact that it you know it is very much a, a modern European nation. You, you can get pretty much any food and drink you want. And one of the things I noticed when we came north in June for the first time, of course, we always used to bring drinks to and from, but In the north, this is a silly thing, but it illustrates the point. You can't buy low sugar versions of soft drinks apart from Coke Zero um, and occasionally Seven Up. And we're used to that. We're used to having a range of soft drinks. I've got type 2 diabetes. My, my wife has to be careful with, with sugar as well for other reasons. And and we're just used to being able to go and buy that. And, you know, I came up here, went in Unimar and Lamar and and, and that was it. It was those two options or nothing. So I think it's that sort of thing. It's a variety of goods uh, and, and the sort of more modern outlook. In, in the north, it used to be that I liked the sort of, slow pace and the, the tranquility of somewhere like Boaz, because it was a contrast to the city. As I said earlier, I'm not sure how long that's going to survive, the concrete mixer and the tower blocks, but we shall see. But I mean, I do like I do like Famagusta Old Town particularly. I've, I've got to know a couple of Cypriots there, one, one of whom has or had, haven't seen him for a while, uh, a business there. So yes, you've got nothing in Larnaca to compare with Famagusta Old Town, or the northern side of Nicosia, for instance. So I, I think that's good. Interestingly, where we live in Larnaca is near a, a, a district, is near a mosque called Tuzla, and the district has the same name, which is less well known than Scala, which is down near the coast. But it used to be a Turkish Cypriot area. And the road names, you, you know, you've got names like uh, El Adab. Ali Dedi and Mehmet Ali and things like that. So they've still got the names and different systems applied in the South where instead of them handing properties over to people, they can only be rented through a, a commission for Turkish Cypriot properties and there have been instances of Turkish Cypriots actually saying no I'm going to reclaim the property in the south so there is that facility now with both systems I'm not saying there wasn't corruption because there was if you're running rental properties or giving out dodgy deeds then you know the the, the scope for things like that did clearly happen but you know it is interesting that you've got these these areas that are, that are preserved you know you've got a bit of culture there as I say I think a good work is being done by Takis and Alpi on the um, heritage they've done a lot of work with famagusta old town with Apostolos andreas at the top of um, the carpas and with other things like churches and, and traditional mosques you know they have actually done a lot of preservation work that is that has uh, been very beneficial for the island
1: that's a bit of a positive note to end on sarah what do you think yes
0: yeah happy <laughs> is there anything else steve that you want to that you want to talk about that anything in particular that you wanted to mention
2: one thing that I, I do find difficult, and, and it's, it, I'm being even-handed here, so I find it difficult in both the North and the South, is, is so many foreign residents, and I'm thinking particularly of British ones, but not exclusively, um, have taken on very extreme nationalist propaganda. Uh, and you see that not so much in the East, actually. It's, it's funny, but in Kyrenia, a lot of people who've been here a long time came here in the Denktash area and bought into all that extreme propaganda and likewise in the pathos limassol area you see it a lot where people think that oh well this is black and white and and, and the other side is wrong and it's not like that conflicts frozen or non frozen are never like that and i find that depressing because i think well you know there's a lot of information out there about cyprus don't just read one or two books and think you know it because you don't you know there, there's an awful lot of literature out there that, that will explain what happened Now. You know, either it, it tries to be even handed or you've a one sided view on one side and another sided view on another. But you know, if you're going to pontificate, then at least know what you're talking about.
1: So that was Steve Comer, a grateful thanks to him. So there's me, Sarah, thinking five minutes before that, the end of that interview that we were going to end on a positive note, and hey ho, it ends up with some negativity.
0: Yeah, but interesting, interesting points. And we should point out that it was us asking Steve for his opinion, not him asking to come on the show. Um, and if some of you thought that um, his uh, opinions were a bit controversial, then please let us know how you feel about them. Whether you agree or disagree, let us know. Uh, we'll make sure your comments are read out in our next podcast, if they're polite, of course. Yeah, you can email us, trnc. Dot podcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter as well. Just look for Talking Round
1: North Cyprus. I do think it's extraordinary what Steve is saying there that the very people, the only people that really matter, the ordinary folk on both sides haven't been asked what they want. Mm. Uh, you know, the ordinary folk. So here's an idea let the Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriots, and I'm talking about the real people, I call them. Let them get together, sort it out, bypass the bloody politicians that never achieve anything. And you know, Sarah, you get a feeling that if Steve was then put in charge of negotiations between the two sides, <laughs> All our problems might
0: be over. <laughs> yes, you would think so, wouldn't you? But I think as well, it boils down to Cypriots, the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots, not the Greeks and the Turks that have come over and are quite partisan. So it's, a, it's an interesting uh, interesting discussion and can't wait to have dinner with Steve. He'd, he'd be a really interesting dinner guest, I think. Thanks to him for uh, for coming up. And again, thanks to you very much indeed for listening. Get to subscribe wherever you listen to this. I'm Sarah Palmer.
1: And I'm Roger Barr. We sincerely hope you've been enjoying Talking Round North Cyprus.